This week on Behind the Lens, a consultant's report commissioned by a New Orleans school found what appear to be serious shortcomings in its special education services, but the full report was not presented to the school's governing body. New Orleans Mayor LaToya Cantrell wants to furlough thousands of city employees one day per pay period for the remainder of the year as a cost-saving measure. Local watchdog groups are urging the city council to pass an ordinance that would ban some surveillance technology in New Orleans, including facial recognition and predictive policing software. And citing a projected $150 million budget shortfall due to the economic impacts of the coronavirus pandemic, the city of New Orleans is arguing in court that it doesn't have the money to build or operate the $51 million facility known as Phase 3. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. On the podcast this week, education reporter Marta Jusen. Good morning, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. Government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein is here. Hi, Michael. Good morning. And pinch hitting for criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle, the Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, Charles. Good morning. Marta, education is up first. You wrote this week about a previously unpublished report that found serious shortcomings with Bricolage Academy's special education program. The report was hidden from the public for months. It was never presented to the school's governing board, though that board commissioned it. Instead, what was made public was a watered-down version that did not mention the critical findings was only uncovered after a parent, who's been a long critic of the school administration's handling of special education, hired a lawyer to get the full report. So let's get into the whole thing here. The school commissioned this report. Why in the first place? Yeah, and that parent that you mentioned, Robbie Chavez, has been a, a vocal critic along with a number of other parents about just various aspects of their special education program. Um, And in response to some of those criticisms over a year ago, the school said that they would investigate. And then um, later on, they hired uh, this consultant to look into the program. When did the report get completed? The report that we didn't see, I believe, was completed in March of this year. Did anyone even know that it was finished until the the sort of edited version came out? I don't believe so. the only people who knew were the people who saw it, and that was a, a small number of school officials and a few, a, at least one board member, but it doesn't seem like the entire board got it. All right, so we're going to have to break down, I guess, what the, what the report said and what was released to the board. Sure. So what, um, what the report found is that, you know, this is a school, like many schools in New Orleans, charter schools that grew from only having a kindergarten up to now they're, I believe, K through seven this year, um, is that they just lacked this infrastructure in their program. And, you know, one of the major findings was that because they just didn't grow the infrastructure as they grew. And I think that's a pretty, that's pretty fundamental finding, especially when we have a number of schools like this in the city. So that's pretty important, I think, for other schools to take a look at. And among those other findings, there were things, you know, the school wasn't properly tracking IEP service minutes, so that, you know, that would be like speech therapy or something like that. And that's not only a problem for the student, but it could be a problem for funding or for consultants who are, you know, providing those services. And they also found that the school was missing out on a small amount of funds, so obviously you want to be capitalizing on all of that. Um, And they also found problems in suspensions compared to the entire school population, you know, students who have disabilities are overrepresenting in the suspended students who have been suspended population. 
If I remember correctly, they, they, they weren't always taking the proper steps before, um, before suspending a special education student. Is that right, Mark? It doesn't, it doesn't seem like they were utilizing those. There's specific programs that exist to, you know, try to work with kids and make sure that they can behave in appropriate ways before you take an action so dramatic as suspending them. As Bricolage Academy Special Education, they didn't address the, the special education program's growth as well. So in other words, they didn't hire additional teachers or, or what do you mean specifically by that? I think they had hired additional teachers. What, what was this report made clear is that, you know, it was just kind of this piecemeal program and, you know, maybe the kindergarten, the way they were doing special ed or interventions in kindergarten wasn't necessarily the same as second or fourth grade. Um, and that these teachers from the report, it says that they were kind of, it appeared to be working in silos, maybe not intentionally, but you know, that that had kind of, that it, that had been what had ended up happening. Okay. I would say that the finding that you're talking about here is not is not sort of a, a discrete finding like like the findings about uh, suspensions and stuff like that. This is this is sort of the the foundational finding of the report that all the the, the other problems kind of kind of grew out of grew out of this school growing so quickly that it was that it was. It, it grew more quickly than it was able to build up its its special education infrastructure, and all the other problems kind of grew from that. Um, and you know, this this has been a school that's grown quickly. I think it started in in what 2013 or something, Marta, and it was it was uh, inside Turo Synagogue, and you know, just seven years later, um, you know, it's a seven I believe 700 student school um, that operates out of a former high school. So this is, and you know, this has been a very popular and, and fast-growing charter school. Had they been transparent about the speed of the growth and then their inability to keep up with it, and to say, hey, you know, we're trying, and here's, you know, we've increased attendance by X percent every year, and we're a little behind on this, we're a little behind on that, there wouldn't have been the same um, flags raised. This is something that. Maybe that they were aware that there were, you know, small shortcomings in certain areas, but it was kind of the thing where you did need a consultant to come in and say, hey, when I took this global view, you know, I can kind of nail down where I think all these issues are coming from. And, and on the issue of transparency, I think that kind of is the, the key point here. These findings, don't get me wrong, they're serious findings. When, when we characterize them in the story as, as apparently, you know, serious shortcomings, that, that's an accurate description. But that said, this is not, these are not kind of unprecedented findings. Um, you know, other schools, uh, New Orleans charter schools, have had similar problems with delivering special education, with, you know, complying with federal laws on federal, special education. Special education is expensive and difficult. The problem here, in my mind, is that, you know, they, they did the right thing by hiring a consultant to identify these problems. The consultant did a, you know, a fairly thorough report of 17 pages of findings, and they just decided that they weren't going to, to make this report public or even present it to the board that, that, um, that commissioned it in the first place. I think had they been more straightforward about it, this would be not such a big deal. Right. Okay. So what did the board see? What was the edited version? 
So the boards, uh, when I when I went through this slideshow that the boards, uh, you know, it really came up across to me as this crisp slideshow that it didn't specifically point out any of these, you know, very negative findings. Um, and, and essentially each area that it hit on, it did hit on some of the, the areas where there were issues, but it would say things like provide more training, you know, just kind of generic things like that. And I know at one point an email was exchanged between a board member and I believe the consultant or a school official who had looked through the draft of the presentation and noticed that it said strengths, but not weaknesses. And she's mm-hmm. like, you know, if you say the word strengths, my mind is going to go to weaknesses, but you know, that's just one example of how they, you know, they didn't say, use the word weaknesses and then point out, you know, some of those more troubling issues. So why? Why did, did the full board that commissioned the report, why did the board not see the full report? We don't know the exact answer to that. Um, actually, in fact, the, the school would disagree with our characterization and what you just said. They say that they did see the final report and that, in fact, this report that had the more detailed um, findings was you know, just notes um, hmm. and that they provided it out of the kindness of their heart and goodwill. Uh, yeah, I always, I always put an executive summary on top of my notes. That's, you know, that's a, that's a thing that people do. And then I think there's this larger issue of um, schools are kind of, I think, terrified to be transparent when they have issues because it, you know, does it create a legal liability? Does it create other liabilities? I think, I think schools are nervous about that. I, I am not suggesting, because I have no idea, but I am noting that if it went in front of the board, it becomes a public document by default. Um, so I'm not saying that was part of their calculation. I am just noting that. How is it that you found out that there was a larger report that had been edited into what was eventually seen? The legwork here was really done by the parent um, and you know he has two sons at the school they both have uh, special education needs and you know he saw this report presented in April didn't see any specific findings so then he he asked for the report and when he got that slideshow he kind of had this feeling like this isn't everything mm. um, and so then during the summer probably in the July um, he got something else called a du- debriefing which appeared to be two pages of notes from a March meeting and that had really specific things in it and so that led him to say I want to you know I want to see the full thing like where did what did these notes come from and so then he had to hire a lawyer to eventually get to it and he got that document on September 10th uh, which the school still maintains is not a final report so it's it's still this back and forth to this day (laughs) what happens next I think the school over the summer, they said they made some hires. They're trying to get better about their program. And, you know, the CEO was like, you know, obviously these, these problems were not born overnight. They, they are things that we're working and will take time to correct. But uh, they say that they've already, you know, made some moves over the summer that are helping uh, to improve things. They bought new software to help track um, student files and uh, they're, they're working to make it better. And what's, what are the parents saying that you've spoken to? You know, we talked to one parent who uh, brought up the health plans and she had a son who she said she, you know, experienced things like the discrepancies they said in the health plan, which is a, which is a document that describes how to um, care for a child if they have a medical need. And other than that, you know, Mr. Chavez is just saying, 
that he, he hopes they will continue to you know work to improve these problems and that they're more transparent in the future and that you know no parent ever has to hire a lawyer to get what should be a public document right thanks marta it's a good story thank you you're listening to behind the lens i'm carolyn heldman my guests this week are marta jusen michael isaac stein and lens editor charles maldonado Hi, my name is Chris Adulam, and I am the social media manager for The Lens. Just as a community is strong through its citizens, the strength of The Lens lies in a highly qualified editorial and research staff, as well as a collaborative network of affiliated organizations. To learn more about our work and the people who do it, sign up for our newsletters at thelensnola.org newsletters. Thanks. Michael, on to you. Busy week for you. Um... The mayor earlier this week announced that she is planning to partially furlough thousands of city employees. She says, of course, it's a result of inadequate revenue resulting from the economic downturn created by the coronavirus. The budget numbers are complicated here. What led to the announcement? Yeah, what led to the announcement, I think, just like you're saying, we're seven months into the coronavirus pandemic. New Orleans has obviously taken a big hit revenue-wise. We're, we're very reliant on sales taxes, um, a lot of which come from the, the tourism industry, which has been more or less shut down. Obviously, the hospitality industry has been suffering, leading to lower tax revenues. So um, we, we've known that you know we were in a pretty dire financial position for a long time. Um, I'd say in terms of the timing of the announcement, maybe just as important as what's led into it is uh, what's going to come after it, which is right around the corner. Um, we're going into um, um, budget talks, um, trying to set the budget for 2021. Um, so this is kind of, I think, you know, a lead in into, you know, that process and, and then really bearing down, looking at the numbers and seeing what they can afford. So let's talk about the the complexities of, of the budget and how how this shortfall is being addressed by the potential furloughs. It's expected revenue that it's coming out of. So yeah, so, so the top of line news here is that the, the city has lost tens of millions of dollars in expected revenue this year. Um, and while there were some stopgap, you know, uh, uh, one-time funding measures that have kept us afloat this year, those aren't expected next year. So, so we're going to get into the kind of complexities of that, but the, the kind of top of line news thing to remember is that we are definitely down tens of millions of dollars and, and that's going to pose a significant problem for our budget next year. So looking at the numbers, you know, we've been talking a lot, you know, at least within the newsroom, trying to parse out the numbers that have come out. There was a recent um, revenue collections report that had some interesting numbers in, um, but you'll hear from the administration, they'll say um, we're facing a $150 million revenue shortfall. Um, they might say budget shortfall. What they're referring to there um, is lost revenue from expected recurring sources of funds. So, so that would be something like sales taxes is something that you expect every single year. They had budgeted a certain amount of, for sales taxes, and now they're expecting a certain amount less. So that's what goes into that number. At the same time, what's not included in that number is um, number one, unexpected one-time funding sources this year. You know, the, the, the issue was whether we were going to be able to just have enough money in the bank to, to pay 
what we had to pay through the end of the year. You know, can you cut paychecks to city employees, to your police officers, et cetera? We've had some massive expenditure savings this year. The Cantrell administration um, really cut down on some spending items and some contracts, and that's looking like, you know, um, tens of millions of dollars more in savings. So I, cautiously right now, it looks like the city will get to the end of the year without having to borrow a lot of money just to, to, to pay those everyday cost expenditures. I guess the bigger question beyond the, the borrowing, and maybe the, they do borrowing first, is are they projecting that they'll get to the end of this year at least without, lay, without furloughs turning into layoffs? Yeah, I, so there's definitely um, something um, related to personnel and payroll is coming soon. Um, whether that's going to be this year or for next year, I don't know. My guess would be that most of the rest of the cuts will come in the 2021 budget. Um, but that would just be my prediction. I, I'll say Cantrell, she, she sent a, a letter to the Civil Service Commission um, about these, these employee furloughs. And, and in the letter, she says in no uncertain terms that, that there are more personnel cuts coming. You know, we, we talked about that recurring revenue shortfall next year. So they're saying we're going to see something similar next year, except we're not going to get CARES Act money and we can't rely on another Harris lawsuit coming to a settlement or to a conclusion. So what they're really worried about is, is 2021 and the personnel cuts that they're going to have to make um, for, for the next year. We're going to find out more about that when she releases her executive budget. Probably. Absolutely. You know, usually uh, when they're talking about personnel cuts, they're going to cut positions through attrition first before doing actual layoffs. So that's what I would expect to see first. Yeah, and they've been doing that. All, I mean, there's been a hiring freeze all year. So there are a lot of vacant positions and um, they've been making exceptions to that rule. But yeah, that's been the strategy so far. And just um, to back up what we're saying, just to... to read it in um, Cantrell's own own writing. She's, she writes to the Civil Service Commission, when we introduce the 2021 budget at the end of this month, that budget will necessarily include personnel spending cuts. And then she says uh, that will come through some combination of furloughs, pay reductions, and or layoffs. So again, by the end of October, we should know a lot more. These furloughs, I, just, just to clarify, I don't think we actually talked about what they were. They amount to a ten a ten percent across the board pay cut for the rest of the year. So then you know the next the next couple months, and that's going to be accomplished by uh, furloughing people one day per pay period. To request this by the Civil Service Commission is this just the 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 way the the Byzantine way that it works in the government, and that's the process by which she has to do this. It's her it's her budget. Well, well, it is, it is, yes. But um, to, in order, in order to do layoffs and furloughs, you have to go through the, the Civil Service Commission, which is an independent body um, that essentially exists to make sure that personnel actions are not being taken with political considerations in mind. Okay. So that a civil service employee can't be laid off or furloughed because they have angered the mayor in some way um so so that's you know that's that's a process that exists at both the city and state levels what mayor cantrell is asking of the civil service commission there are really kind of two two separate requests in this letter one is a request for the for approval for the furloughs themselves to the personnel director um who is uh, uh that's an administrative position not part of the civil service commission but the, she runs the the civil service department and, and that's a standard procedure for furloughs part of that standard procedure for furloughs however is a 30-day notice requirement if in this case you want to start the furloughs 
immediately, you need to get a civil service commission vote to waive the 30-day notice requirement. Mm-hmm. And I think what the mayor is saying here is that, is that if I have to do a 30-day notice requirement and wait until November to actually start these furloughs, we're going to be talking about a lot more furlough days for employees for the last part of the year. Oh, okay. Okay. The way that uh, Mayor Cantrell is framing this to the Civil Service Commission is, please approve this quickly, because if you don't, you know, we can either give, you know, we can either furlough people six days um, for the rest of the year starting now, or if we wait and we have to, you know, debate this for two months, then it's going to be six days furlough just in December. You know, that's going to be more bunched up and people are going to feel that effect um, a little bit harder. So her argument to the uh, uh, Civil Service Commission is this is coming. It's necessary. It's worth noting that Mayor Cantrell said she's also taking that cut um, and urged other elected officials to as well. So it's hypothetically going to affect um, the entire city workforce. Not just the library people. Right. And an update to this story, just after recording, the New Orleans Civil Service Commission voted to allow Mayor LaToya Cantrell to go forward with the plan to partially furlough all city employees through the end of the year. Effective this Monday, all city employees will be furloughed for one day every two-week pay period, six total days through the end of the year, equating to a roughly 10% pay cut for the last three months of the year. The measure passed in a three-to-one vote. Commissioner Clifton Moore, the one member who's nominated by city employees, was the sole no vote. Michael, the second story you wrote about this week, the New Orleans City Council is set to consider an ordinance that would place tighter restrictions on how the city uses surveillance technology. Why is the City Council trying to limit surveillance? Yeah, so this ordinance has been in the works. Um, I actually looked it up yesterday since March 11th. It was a, a smart and sustainable cities committee meeting. Um, They they were considering what they were calling a smart cities pilot, which was going to install um, these smart street lights in the central business district, cameras and audio detection capabilities. And so we went to the meeting to cover what the discussion would be. And and kind of surprisingly, Councilman Jason Williams says, we're going to press pause on this. Um, People have brought up um, certain concerns about this technology and kind of spoke on this really high level about how there was a need to, to really take a step back from surveillance as a whole um, and create more of a, a real regulatory framework um, for how the city should consider um, you know new surveillance technologies. I mean, a big part of this conversation at the time was th- this group called Ion Surveillance, um, which held this rally this week. You know, they, they're trying to track the surveillance system in New Orleans, and and it's really hard because these technologies are being built into more and more um, stuff that isn't you know, necessarily directly related to criminal justice. So this was a, a smart cities pilot, um, and they were arguing you know, how in the world could we, you know, would we be expected to know that this would mean more surveillance? So that was kind of the conversation at the time. They wrote up this ordinance that was you know, really thorough. It, it, it had some outright bans for certain pieces of technology like facial recognition, um, and it set up this um, really extensive kind of oversight and reporting system for surveillance um, technology. So it would it would set up a system by which you know you would have to submit a request 
to the city council to add any new piece of surveillance equipment and if they approved it that would only last for three years so you would have to come back every three years and and read justify your use of a certain piece of surveillance equipment um, there were also annual reporting requirements so it would have been a whole new you know regulatory scheme within the government that didn't exist before so that was you know the ordinance as originally written besides the smart street lights what else do they have out there the city has hundreds of cameras um, that they own throughout the city that feed into the real-time crime center, um, which was built in 2017. Other cameras that feed into that station. We also have a program called Safe Cam Platinum, um, which allows people to um, connect their private personal cameras to that system. There are license plate readers all throughout the city. It'd be hard to give you kind of a comprehensive list of all the different, you know, um, surveillance tools in the city. I mean, one one reason that's a little hard is because there's also um, disagreement over what the definition of surveillance is mm. um, and whether that has to be directly related to law enforcement or whether it can um, be involved in other things. So there, there's a lot out there. We're, we're, you know, trying to build a comprehensive list, but um, there's a lot out there. Okay. And you mentioned Jason Williams, Councilman Jason Williams had put forward a, an ordinance earlier this year. How is this different or the same as that? Yeah. And, and, and just kind of lead into that with some, you know, the, the timeline here. So, so I talked about that in March meeting where he, you know, pressed pause on that one program. Um, he ended up introducing the ordinance in July um, at a committee meeting and it was really, it was received with a lot of skepticism from most of the council. Um, I think there isn't a huge appetite on the council to restrict um, surveillance capabilities as much as there is to expand them. So after that meeting where it kind of got this, you know, pretty flat reception from the council, it, it kind of, we didn't hear much about it since, you know, after that. But now we're being told both by Jason Williams' office um, and ion surveillance organizers who, who helped write the ordinance originally, it, it's going to come to a vote on October 15th. Now, the key here is that it's the ordinance that they're going to be voting on is not what they originally wrote. I mean, the key difference is that they've stripped um, the ordinance of those reporting and approval processes that I talked about before, which at least in my reading was the real meat of the ordinance. And instead, it's going to retain a ban on four specific pieces of, of surveillance technology. So um, that's facial recognition, characterization recognition. So that's the, there's software that the city owns that, you know, you can input show me everyone who's been on camera today who had a red shirt on or who was riding a blue bike. Um, you know, there's other software out there that claims to be able to track, you know, someone's gait, how they walk. Basically, it's, it's people have complained that there's, there are ways around facial recognition when there's facial recognition ban. So um, that's what the characteristic recognition ban would be. The other two pieces of technologies would be stingrays, um, which are cell site tower simulators. It, it's basically something that the federal government, I think, mostly is used to kind of intercept um, certain cell phone data. The last piece of um, uh, surveillance technology that would be banned by the ordinance is um, predictive policing software. So an example of that, if you remember famously, the city partnered with Palantir, um, a CIA-funded tech company, to use this, this software that, that um, claimed to be able to predict people who were more likely to be involved in a gun crime. Um, so, so things of that sort would be banned under this ordinance.
Mm. So, so really we're going from a more, you know, from an ordinance that created a, a regulatory structure to an ordinance that is more focused on banning four specific types of surveillance technology. Okay. Yeah, the original idea here was, uh, uh, I, you know, just judging from Jason Williams' public statements is that, you know, five, six years ago, we'd have no, we had no idea that we would be dealing with software that claims to be able to identify people by the way they walk. So five or six years from now, we don't, right now, we don't know what we're going to be dealing with five or six years from now. So rather than banning specific technologies, it makes more sense to, to put a regulatory structure in place and say that we have to go through an approval process every time we add a new type of surveillance technology. What they're doing now instead is just saying, well, here's the existing technology and we're going to ban these specific pieces of existing technology. Okay. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. Charles, you are standing in this week for our criminal justice reporter, Nick Krastel. Hearings began this week on whether the city can get out of building a new jail building to house inmates with acute mental health needs. This sort of dovetails with our budget issues that we talked about earlier. What are the arguments the city is making against phase three? Okay, so there's two main kind of overriding arguments. Argument number one is uh, that this is just going to cost too much. Phase three is, you know, just to catch everybody up, it is uh, a third building uh, on the campus of the New Orleans jail. There are currently two buildings. The two buildings that exist now are the housing uh, building, which is uh, the Orleans Justice, Justice Center, and they have a kitchen and warehouse building. Um, so the kitchen and warehouse is phase one, the housing building is phase two, so hence phase three is the third building. And where phase three would go is in this empty field that is there between the two buildings that exist. And if anybody's been over there before, you'll notice that there are, you know, sort of un unfinished bridges from the kitchen and warehouse and, uh, and the, the main jail building that sort of just hang over this field, suggesting correctly that some people have, uh, have planned for phase three to exist all along. <laughs> um, phase three would be used for, uh, to house inmates with acute and subacute mental health and, and, and medical needs. For several years, they've been housed at a state prison, uh, you know, about an hour or so away, uh, under an agreement with the state. The state is no longer, uh, interested in housing those inmates. So they've got to come back to New Orleans. The problem that the city is encountering and the sheriff's department, the sheriff's office is encountering is where to put them. What the city would like to do at this point, at least, is to retrofit a part of the existing jail. What um, the other interested parties um, who are all part of the consent decree litigation, which is the re jail reform agreement that's been in a place for a long time, yeah. is to build phase three. Now, getting back to your actual question, and I apologize, the two issues here are money and necessity. So the city says this is going to cost too much money. It's a $51 million project to build phase three. Of that $51 million, uh, the city claims that, uh, that only $36 million would be reimbursable by, by FEMA, leaving the city on the hook for the remaining 15. 
on top of that, the city is estimated that the annual operating cost, because a new building is going to require, you know, new staffing and things like that, the annual operating cost would be another nine or $10 million a year. Mm. The cost to retrofit the second floor of the jail, the city has estimated is un- under $10 million. I'm not sure what the operating costs on that would be, though. But the city is saying this costs too much money, we'd save a lot of money with the retrofit. Number two is, is this necessary? And the city's saying it's not. The, the current jail has a, uh, a bed cap of 1,438. It has a, uh, a legal inmate cap of 1,250. Currently, we have about 900, under 900 inmates inside the jail. That's a post-pandemic total, and it, it's gone down since the beginning of the pandemic. Even prior to the pandemic, we were you know somewhere in the, the 1,000 to 1,100 range. So the city is saying that we, you know, we have the room and uh, it's also saying that mental health care has improved in the jail as it exists over the past several years, uh, according to reports by, by the federally appointed monitors and the consent decree. So we just don't need to do this massive project. The other parties to the consent decree do not agree with that. Uh, are saying that it, it's impractical to retrofit. Basically, that these inmates have to be, you know, segregated in such a way that building in the current jail would mean taking a whole lot of beds offline. You know, if, if we have an increased jail population, we wouldn't be able to handle. So that basic argument that's taking place in federal court this week, on Wednesday, a lot of the discussion centered on the theme of money because we know that FEMA is... We know that FEMA has approved phase three for these funds. What's a question mark is whether, and the city is claiming it is, whether FEMA is willing to cover a retrofit of the second floor instead of building out a third building. Uh, And what happened yesterday was the judge who was presiding over this hearing said, basically said he was unsatisfied with what the city had to say on that. Um, as to whether FEMA would be willing to uh, to cover this retrofit, they, the city's testimony on that to the effect that, that FEMA w- would be willing to cover it um, came down to the to the memory of a, a city employee's phone call with a FEMA representative, oh. um, and the judge said that's not good enough, and I can't approve uh, I can't approve your request to, to suspend phase three unless you give me more assurances that. Uh, that federal money will will actually be coming into the retrofit of the second floor. Mm. So that that was that was a pretty interesting moment yesterday. So the judge tipped his hat a little bit there, or showed his cards a little bit there. Any other indications of, of how he's leaning? If I were to predict it right now, and and you know, keep in mind, we've only seen the city's arguments and the cross examination of city witnesses thus far. It's very possible that the other parties to the consent decree will, will get some critical questioning from the judge as well, but the, the judges who have been involved in the consent decree case seem to be pretty exasperated with the city over this, hmm. um, and because the city had agreed to get going on phase three in, in uh, 2019 and done preliminary work on uh, architecture and engineering for months and months was providing the court with monthly status updates on how they were making progress on phase three. And then suddenly uh, in June, the city decided to pull out of it. You know, I'm not going to make a prediction on this right now, but I I would say that I would not be surprised to see the the judges uh, deny the city's request to suspend work because I think... um, you know, I think after the city having having agreed to begin work on this, uh, 
they've become a little frustrated with the back and forth and they just want to see see something move ahead now that gets us into the question of, of and this is another part of the city's argument uh, whether a federal judge has the power to order the city to to build a building uh, for a jail. There is a provision of the federal law that seems to suggest that, that a federal judge doesn't have that power. However, federal judges and the other parties to the case have sort of made the argument that the judge isn't ordering you to build a jail. The judge is ordering you to live up to what you were agreed to in order to, to provide adequate mental health care, uh, which is a requirement under the federal consent decree. I always have to mention this because this, this has been a big controversy for many years in part because the city had such a long history of having an overly large jail, uh, a jail that used to be able to accommodate 7,000 people. And that has left many people uh, in this city with a distaste, uh, you know, understandably, for adding new jail infrastructure and adding new buildings to house people in at the jail. And on top of that, we're talking about Another issue that I think is important to criminal justice reform advocates, which is the issue of what they would characterize as the criminalization of mental illness. We are building a building in a jail to house people with serious mental illness. Right. And, uh, you know, a lot of people would say, well, you know, that's, that's not what we should be doing with these people. They should be in, a, in, the, in the healthcare system. The, the city sort of fickleness aside, there, there, there are you know, real criminal justice issues at stake here. Right. Charles for Nick. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good week. Thank you. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan, public interest newsroom on Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Marta Jusen, Michael Isaac Stein, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news along with opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.